Do you know about Acker Wines? It's America's oldest wine shop and the world's largest fine wine auction house. Their weekly web auction is all the rage right now with thousands of new bottles available every week with all types of great stuff ready for drinking with prices starting at $20. That's right, 20 bucks. With hundreds of selections for less than $100 every month, there are tons of wines to choose from. If you're looking for fun, new or aged bottles to try, each week brings a new assortment of the world's finest and rarest wines, often in try them out sizes. Also, there's no reason not to be buying at auction, especially when the finds are this good. In addition, the retail store is stocked with thousands of items to choose from, including lots of cutting-edge stuff. Go to ackerwines.com to get in on the action and take your cellar and drinking habits to the next level. That's ackerwines, A-C-K-E-R, wines.com. Use the promo code BWG25 to get $25 off any purchase of $100 or more. Retail only. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey, hey, what's up, everybody? It's your boy, MJ, and welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is Ben Aniff, the managing partner of Tribeca Wine Merchants. Tribeca Wine Merchants was named one of America's best wine shops by Food & Wine Magazine. Ben's first job in the wine world was a part-time position at Tribeca Wine, where he later went on to become the director of sales and has been managing partner since 2014. Ben has been a leading figure in the fight against wine tariffs and was named a 2020 wine industry leader by Wine Business Monthly. He is on the board of directors of the National Association of Wine Retailers and is the president of the U.S. Wine Trade Alliance, the all-tier advocacy organization dedicated to ensuring a tariff-free environment for wines in the United States. Uh, ben lives in Park Slope, Brooklyn, with his lovely wife, Hillary. Welcome, Ben. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Glad to be here, MJ. Thank you so much. Well, Ben, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, ben and I actually connected through uh, a soon-to-be podcast guest, uh, Josh Reynolds, said, you should have Ben Anif on. He'd be a great guest. So uh, I reached out to him. Or I, or I don't try to remember this time is fly we were just sitting here going it's, it's already it's almost june like so somehow we got connected through josh you said yes and we're here and i'm so excited you're here man absolutely um tell us what wines you brought what we're going to be drinking this afternoon a little day drinking absolutely today. uh you know i have two wines i i'm really passionate about and uh one is a super fancy wine and but isn't really a super fancy wine and the other's uh not it's really represents what wine's about um the first wine I brought is a Dury Gentil Rui from 2018. And, you know, we're a Burgundy house, Tribeca Wine Merchants. It's what we do. We didn't start doing Burgundy four or five years ago. We've been doing it. It's been like <laughs> the premise of our business for a very long time. Um, and Rui is one of these outer lying appellations that 
people just didn't care about for a long time. And I happen to think they're starting to be able to make some extraordinary wine. And, and there are a lot of, of uh, lesser known appellations where the ceiling is a lot higher than people realized. But not very many people had the capacity to sort of reach for that ceiling. Mm -hmm. And the, other, the next wine that I, that I brought, I think, represents what that ceiling can be. Can be. And it's a Dauvinet Ozidores Le Clos from 2007. So Domaine Loire's legendary uh, home domain Dauvinet. And Ozidores for most people, like Rui, um, is sort of an outerlying appellation that a lot of people haven't even heard of, mm -hmm. to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, while Rui's Cote de Chalonais and Ozi's in the Cote de Bone, most people couldn't legitimately find where Ozi is. And a lot of people simply don't know the wine, wines exist. But this represents to me what some of these less well-known villages can do. This wine could be, in my view, effectively any Chardonnay on the planet. Mm. If you have Montmarché, Bateau Montmarché, Creote, Marceau Perrier, Courton Charlemagne, from the very best producers. The Dauvinet Ozi bottling shows how incredibly high the ceiling is on some of these wines. And so I think I think it's a fun thing to do. I, I, that's one, one of the things we really like is finding, you know, what are the what are the parts of Burgundy particularly, but all over the world, where you can get really extraordinary wine uh, where the ceiling is very high, but maybe it hasn't been met yet. You know, we're sort of on that journey there right now. That's really cool because, <clears throat> I mean, with so much of the focus um, – I love what you said. You said, first of all, we didn't start doing Burgundy in the last five years. And, you know, I think it's so good that there's this awareness coming to wine uh, because uh, we have like a whole – like athletes now are, are talking about consuming wine and, and so many of the NBA players love Burgundy, right? But LeBron like, James walked into our Saturday tasting one day. And I tell you what, we're in Tribeca. So we, we get – you know the way New York is. Yeah, you yeah, see yeah. celebrities all the time. Yeah, yeah. Nobody cares in New York. Nobody cares. Right. And, you know, we've gotten Meryl Streep. We've gotten loads of famous actors and legitimately nobody blinks an eye. But on a Saturday afternoon, six foot ten LeBron James walks into the store and everybody's like, oh, my oh shit, it's LeBron. And do you remember the Houston – do you remember when he he wore the Tom Brown like suit to the Houston Rockets? Yes. Uh, yeah. It was a famous like interview. Yeah, he yeah. wore like the short Tom yeah. Brown suit. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Spectacularly weird. Yeah. There, Tom Brown's like a block and a half from us, so I'm sure that's where he was. But uh, we had a, and a friend of ours poured him a Puri of Calan Marais. He loves the wines. But yes, yeah. we see that happening. Yeah. And so, so, and, and so a lot of it, I mean, Burgundy for the average consumer, we had an Eric Azemoff one. For the average consumer, Burgundy is now out of reach. But for, I think what you're talking about, like when you these outer lying villages that are lesser known, I think a lot of people go for the names in Burgundy, but I think there's so much potential, like you said. So I'm excited to try these wines, basically, is what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. You know. Well, and you know, it's really hard today because, you know, if you think about, and I think about this a lot, like, what's the dollar value you're spending at like a great meal? If you're going to like a Michelin restaurant, if you're, if you're spend if you're going to go to 11 Madison and you're going to spend 150 bucks a person or gosh, it's probably more now, 250 bucks a And it's going to be for vegetables. Soon. Oh my God. Oh, that's God. a whole other conversation. Lord. Uh, but, but I always think, you know, if you're getting a two, if you're getting a two star Michelin dining experience, I want to be able to have a two star Michelin wine experience for no more than the cost of that meal. Mm -hmm. And if your wine list can't do that, that 
that's a problem for me. If you're a three-star Michelin and you're charging people 300 bucks to go, I want to see a three-star Michelin caliber wine priced at least in that range. And nowadays, these are some of the wines that are act- I actually think I would be totally satisfied with this Rui. And by the way, the wine's 40 bucks. It's not inexpensive, right, right. but it's mm-hmm. not over the top. But I'd be I'd be thrilled with this wine at a, a load of really tremendous restaurants. That's awesome. So let's get a pour going, and then let's kind of while while you're pouring, like so you are a Texan, and God bless Texas. Yeah, and you now you're a New Yorker. Uh, you went to Texas Tech um, and graduated with a bachelor's in music. I did, and and then you ended up, I guess, in New York State. You went to Ithaca to pursue your master's in music. That's right. Okay, so um, what was your goal when when you were uh, an undergrad and even a grad student? Uh, you know, I went when I was in high school in Texas. Music is a thing, and like instrumental music is a big thing. Boy, yeah, the wine smells great. Oh my god! It just you know, it's. That, I mean, for Rui. Yeah, I mean, that white. I mean, like just that distinct. <laughs> nose of white burgundy like you know and there, there's just a nose like everyone is different but like you know when you stick your nose in a glass of white burgundy versus california you know it well you know what's funny is this is cote de chalonnaise which half the people that drink white burgundy don't even know where the cote de chalonnaise is which you know i'd completely understand but not a legendary village by any means but if i was if i was going to a blind tasting and we were doing chasson montrachet and poulin montrachet premier cruise and i knew and someone said hey buddy uh, you know, my wine was corked. I accidentally brought just like a Rui from Dury Gentil, and there was some kind of prize for whoever bought the, the most delicious blind. Mm-hmm. I would be concerned. Like I would think, uh oh, that Rui could embarrass my Chasson Marchais. And, and yeah, that, and you should are... be. Yeah, no, no, you didn't. No, absolutely. This, I mean, oh, no, Rebecca Wine is forty dollars um, a bottle. And, and by the way, get some. Oh my if god. They've got this on the on the on the wine list at Crown Shy. The other I saw the other day at a very reasonable price point. Uh, I mean, I'd be thrilled with that bottle at a restaurant. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, uh, you know, I grew up as a musician, and you know, I I did classical music. I was a horn player, and you know, music's kind of this weird thing, especially classical music. And I remember when I was in undergrad, I went to, you know, there was one summer I got into the Aspen Music Festival. Okay. And they call that like Juilliard West and it's where everybody sort of goes, uh, you know, sort of preparation for orchestral training. And I had, uh, I'd always thought it'd be interesting to be a conductor, but no one in the world, you know, I, I, I think the job path is similar to being Superman, right? It's just, you know, <laughs> yada, 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 boom, you're Superman and or, or yada, 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 boom, you're a conductor. I didn't realize there was, a, there was sort of a path, but I got... Uh, I played for a couple of weeks in the Conductors Academy Orchestra at Aspen, um, which was fascinating because I got to see all of the student, you know, the grad school conductors um, practicing their craft. And I got to learn that, boy, really, it is a skill that that you build and you learn. Um, and I thought that was fascinating. And so uh, there's this whole school of orchestral conductors that had come that had been wind people from the University of Michigan. And one of them was at Ithaca. And he said... Uh, I knew him through my uh, one of my college professors, and he said, "Look, 
if you come, we're going to give you opportunities. And you're, you're going to be in front of an orchestra every day. You're going to get to run a chamber ensemble. I, I got to run an organization where I, I got to work with Pulitzer Prize winning composers. It was just, it was amazing. And I had a terrific experience there. I got to do huge works, you know, Shostakovich 5, Beethoven 4, Brahms 1, things that you, you would never be able to do in most places. And then it's funny, I had a huge, uh, you know, I had a Job, what for me I thought was a Job moment, you know. A, 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 a real hardship mm -hmm. right at the end of my uh, a, a, of grad school uh, and look if, if you're in grad school for music it's not like when you go get an MBA and they're like here are all of the people that want to hire you right, right, uh, when right. you get when you go to graduate school in music they're like well God bless buddy <laughs> <laughs> you know call us in 10 years and see if you've heard of a job uh, but I got a call from Cornell University and uh, they said they wanted me to uh, be a finalist for the associate director of bands at Cornell and I was like oh my god this is amazing first of all I hadn't applied. Um, but they knew I had previously been a wind player. Mm -hmm. And I was like, boy, it's an actual job right, right, out, of, right out of school, which is effectively impossible, which mm -hmm. I understood. And so I did the, the smart thing, which is to put all my hopes and dreams and future on this one, uh, this one thing. And I, of course, thought I did great in the interview because I'm tall and tall people usually think they did great. Um, well, statistically tall people do. I mean, they yeah, run, I mean, what they they run studies. They I mean, they, do, like, they run studies. Taller people yeah. do. I mean, I could, I offered to like get any of the, like the music off the top shelf music <laughs> library, you know, like I could do thing, you know, stuff. Um, and anyway, I got a call a couple of weeks later and they went with someone else and I was just devastated. And uh. I mean, devastated. I was trying to notebook, you know, and think, who has had more hardship in their life than me at this one moment, not getting the first job that I wanted? Um, <laughs> that you didn't even apply for. <laughs> at this, yeah. Um, and so I came to New York City and I and I now, now look, the weird thing is, is it would have taken me like on a wind band path, which was total, not really what I wanted to do, but it, it was certainty. Mm -hmm. But I came to New York City and I started working, um, doing exactly what I wanted, uh, working with, you know, regional orchestras um, part time. Which was fun, but you make zero dollars and or not zero, but not enough to live in New York City. But New York City was so exciting. I mean, I mean, you know, like the draw, the pull yeah, is incredible. Yeah, yeah. And I started working. You know, I needed. A, you know, most regional orchestras were heard. Maybe they got six concerts a year, right? So you do like a week. You know, a week's rehearsal and then a concert. Not enough to live on. Um, and so I thought about getting into, you know, lottery playing as a full-time profession to <laughs> sort of, you know, bridge the gap. And, I, and then I thought, oh, you know, maybe that maybe that's not, not going to pay the rent. Uh, so I saw an advertisement for, you know, a delivery guy at Tribeca Wine Merchant. So I said, God, you know, I really love wine. And I didn't – I knew nothing about wine. And when I say nothing, I mean – I. When I said I love wine, I mean that's basically the expand – the fact that I could recognize if what was in my glass was wine, I could tell the difference between that and beer or like a Jack and Coke. That was the expanse of my knowledge of wine at that point. Um, but I knew I really enjoyed it because, you know, Ithaca's in the Finger Lakes. And yep. so every yep. once in a while there would be some – there would be some – uh, some bottles, you know, show up and they'd get consumed. And I thought that was just delicious and interesting. Yeah. And uh, I was very lucky. I uh, I had, you know, a 45-minute subway commute to work every day. And I just read, every, 
you know, I, I think one of the great things that New York City offers is that built-in study hall called built called study, <laughs> study hall exactly right subway, yeah. and so yeah. i ha i had an hour and a half every day on the way to and from work to read uh i of course like a lot of people you know got obsessed and you were first starting to get you know internet forums that were sharing information and i would read everything that i could uh and i was in a place that gave me access to really really great wine and and to to people you know you could walk around tribeca and you know Daniel Jonas's office were a couple of blocks away. He would pop in. Uh, you know, we had Boulay next door. Uh, we'd see the wine drinkers there, Tribeca Grill around the corner. It, it's this in incredible little wine community right over there that, that's been there for a long time. Um, you know, and, and sort of the heart of Burgundy, right? If you think da when Daniel Jonas and uh, Drew Nieperon opened Montmartre, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that was the heart of Burgundy in the United States. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew the wines. Nobody cared, really. Um, but so it was... I was given access to to knowledge that would have been really hard for me to replicate in other places. Totally. How many uh, before uh, before we move on to music? How many instruments do you actually play, or did you used to play? Uh, I mean, I I could could have played. Well, how many instruments I'd feel comfortable playing in like an orchestral setting? One. Okay. How many <laughs> instruments could I play a scale on? A lot. Um, but I, I don't know that I would say I can play them. I can tell you, and for all of the, for anybody out there, if you're, if you have, if you're a list person, you know, if you like the, you know, the Atul Gawande checklist book or whatnot, Checklist Manifesto, which is great. Or if you just like, if you're a classic American and you like to list the best ofs, that's a very mm -hmm. American thing, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, hardest tasks. I think that's an interesting one or hardest jobs. Those okay. sort of things. I would tell you that the hardest task that I have ever had to do was to play a chromatic scale on a bassoon. Um, it most instruments have some sort of logic assigned to them, you know, like you push first button, second button, third button, which is followed by fourth, <laughs> and then you switch hands. You go first, second, third, fourth. Uh, the bassoon is derived, from what my understanding, mainly through witchcraft, uh, and effectively, it's like there's seventy-five buttons, some of which you would half cover, full cover, and every single note going from low to high, it's effectively a brand new combination that has absolutely no relationship whatsoever with the previous note. So it is the hardest task that I've ever had to do. And the most, probably the most stressful thing that I've, that I've had to live with <laughs> was my midterm bassoon final in undergrad. And, and what is the instrument you feel most comfortable? If you were in an orchestra, what would you, like if you went I was a French horn player. French horn. Beautiful. Now you're supposed to just call it the horn. Oh. The International Horn Society has told us. Oh my God. I can't do Corno, it, Corno. Yeah. I can't do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, okay. Weirdly enough, we're the only people that call it the French horn. The French are like, what are you talking about? It's, just, it's the horn. Yeah. They don't call them French frites either. You know, so we do a lot of yeah, things. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, all right. So you started at the bottom. He's like, oh, wine delivery. So you – You know, so you become a wine delivery person. You are studying on the subway. What were some of the, the books you were reading? What were some of the things you were consuming to – McNeil's Wine Bible was the first book I read cover to cover. And I thought that was – you know, if you want to get into the wine world, I think that's really helpful. It gives you, you know, not a ton of uh, – it doesn't go incredibly deep in every part of the wine business or part of the wine world. But it's, but it's very, very broad. You need, to, you need to learn the very basics about almost every region and they give you, you know, a, 
good, better, best producers in every region. And then I remember uh, Jay McInerney, Jay McInerney's uh, Hedonist in the Cellar, which I thought was just fascinating. You know, Jay writes book, really great books about wine, but they're not technical. You know, he'll compare yeah. something to a movie or an actress, uh, and it's very visual. And by the way, another terrific, you know, Tribeca connection, you know, Bright Lights Big City with Odeon on mm-hmm. the front cover, mm-hmm. you know, which is effectively a block from our store. But um, it, it it was just that one, that book made me really, I didn't know anything about what these wines were. You know, I, I remember reading about, you know, there's an article about uh, Danny Meyer loving Cintarelli. And mm-hmm. I didn't know who Danny Meyer was. And I didn't know what Cintarelli was. But I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to learn about both. Uh, and he made he made you really uh, it wasn't just that the wines were interesting or delicious, but that they they gave you an experience that mm-hmm. you might not have in another way. Yeah, totally, totally. Wow. I just, when you said Quintarelli, I mean, I think about, like I've had it a few times and it is – I was like, my mind just went there. I was like, oh, it is a total experience like you said. It just, oh, absolutely. Just, oh. Um, so – how long did you stay in delivery? What was your next steps? What's the progression? You're, 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 you're reading, you're studying. I'm sure, I assume they let you taste uh, at the store. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was, I was uh, the good news about Tribeca Wine Merchants is, you know, we, we do work with or the wines we were really interested in, our, the, the sort of premise, which I, I won't say it's the right premise, but it's what we've always sort of believed. You know, we, we love like the – we love wines of terroir mm-hmm. um, that, that reflect place mm-hmm. and that reflect varietal really well. And uh, for us, that means, you know, we do a lot of – mostly the old school wines. It was mm-hmm. um, Burgundy and Piedmont and Older Barolo. Uh, Daniel Jonas actually said it really well to me one time. The best way to learn about those wines, you want to learn about the wines of Domaine Lefleuve. Like, what are all the different premier crews that Lefleuve makes? Pick them up and put them back down. When you got to move twenty cases of Domaine Lefleuve up and down, <laughs> up and down a flight of stairs, then you really start to learn the wines. Uh, and I, I still think that's one of the best ways to learn about wine. Go pack boxes. Go move boxes. Uh, do inventory, um, and it's hard. It's hard to do that from. A, it's hard to do that from an office, or you've really got to, you know, put your hand on the thing, and really helps you learn it. But um, pe- people saw that I was, you know, obsessed. And look, mm-hmm. wine's a lot like music, right? You yeah. basically you've found a hobby. You you have been. Uh, something's taken a hold of you. You know, people that want to get into music, they're, they're not getting into music because their parents always wanted them to get, get into music. Uh, they're getting into music because they think this, this is, it's this incredible thing and it would be such a luxury to be able to spend your time doing what you love. Mm-hmm. Wine is very similar to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, and particularly the fine and rare wine world, no one would get into that business because they think that's the, that's certainly not the biggest market in the wine world. You, you, a, a business would make a lot more money probably selling millions of cases of Pinot Grigio. Yep. Um, but you have to be really passionate about it. And they saw that I was really passionate about it and they gave me opportunity. And I, I, I'm complete, I recognize completely that particularly in, in, in my niche mm-hmm. uh, that I, you know, sort of fell into this sort of, you know, fine wine niche. Um, it's hard to find opportunity and I, I wouldn't be where I am without it. But I, I remember specifically, for instance, you know, we often had uh, great Burgundy and Bordeaux that would get opened at, uh, you know, 
customer would come in or there'd be a little wine dinner that somehow I'd, I'd get a glass of before people went out. But I, I didn't really feel like I understood the wines of Piedmont very well. Mm -hmm. um, I'd read a lot about them and I'd heard how extraordinary they were. Um, and I remember I told, uh, you know, the partners at the time said, God, you know, I feel like I've learned so much. Like I, at that point I'd have, like, I like to say the Domaine Lafleur cause it's a good example. I felt like I'd had every Domaine Lafleur wine except for Montmartre. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I was really fascinated by them. The, it was the 04 vintage, which was rough for red, but really great for white. And the wines, by the way, cost nowhere near what they cost today. Um, shocking no one. But I said, I, I really, I, you know, I read it's supposed to smell like violet and tar and, you know, fruit, but I, I don't even know what that means. Um, and one of the partners said, gosh, you know what? There's a dinner that we're going to and uh, we actually had somebody cancel. Why don't you come to dinner? And 11 Madison was doing these really interesting wine dinners. And at that time and that night or later that week, there was actually a Piedmont dinner. And I was actually at a table with Roberto Conterno. Wow. Um, with some really knowledgeable old collectors, uh, people that had been doing, you know, Caterno Monfortino and the wines of Jacosa and Bartolo Mascarello for a very long time, for 30 years, when absolutely nobody cared about those wines. They were buying them. Um, and it was fascinating. And it was, you know, my very first and some of my most memorable experiences of those wines because they are so entirely different from, uh, you know, the, the, there's obviously a lot of overlap between those wines and Burgundy, but they're also entirely different. The flavor profile is very different. Um, but they do represent, you know, what we like about wine. What's so interesting is the singularity of, uh, you know, the way terroir and grape uh, can work together to show something incredibly unique and delicious. And so both of those aspect things with Burgundy and Barol and Piedmont are very, very similar, obviously. It's a wine of place. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. It's transparent. It's a wine of single varietal. Um, but the profiles can be very different as, as well. So, but, but it's fascinating. But I, I'm really cognizant that uh, there are not a lot of places I would have had the opportunity to do that. And it's a really difficult thing to get experience with and to learn. It really is. So I, I feel very fortunate in that respect. No, I, 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 uh, I, I understand it completely. You know, had I, you know, working at Acker, you know, another fine wine exactly shop, right. gave me access to things that I that I would just never have had the opportunity to taste. And and and, and that was just really. It's just that was just luck. You know that. Right. Exactly. Exactly right. Um, but but it is very true. Um. It, 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 there's just not a lot of places you can have these opportunities to taste these wines. Um, and it's getting more difficult for and, and, and It exactly. really is. And, and getting way more difficult. Like you said, I mean, it was, yeah. Um, so uh, you're geeking out, man. You're studying. Well, the wine's delicious it, right now. Oh, it's so good. It's, it's so good. I tell you, we need you. Uh, we posted you're going to wish you had Tastegram instead of Instagram because these wines are just. Mm. Um, so then you get on the floor, you, uh, you know, selling wine. Uh, what was that experience like for you? Like, did you feel like you said earlier, like with the music, you know, you like, you know, I, you know, it's like yada, yada, boom. So like, were you, when you, when you first went out to sell wine, were you feeling confident or you, how were you feeling? Well, my very first days, I remember I was utterly terrified because I didn't know what a Sangiovese tastes like. Yeah. Um, someone would come in and say, you know the way wine descriptors are difficult, right? Yep. They're difficult if you've been in the wine business for a very long time. Right. When someone says, I want something sweet or not sweet, it might mean something totally different to someone. <laughs> this is you know, one person might think Chardonnay is sweet, whereas another person might say, well, actually, there's really no sugar, residual sugar in this wine, so it's dry. Um, so that was 
baffling to me. Uh, but I had a couple of people that, you know, gave me the, you know, the, you know, the first week of wine sales, uh, look, this is, this is a great Chianti. You know, at the time, Malbec was really big. You know, this is the difference between Malbec and a California Cabernet. Um, you know, here's a, here's a great little Pinot Noir that people mm-hmm. are going to really love. But starting to do the fine and the, the fine wine stuff, it, um, by the time, by the time I was allowed to do that stuff, I was just ready to go. Um, I, I read way more than I had any, any business really reading. Um, so, you know, there was sort of an imbalance in like, you know, how much I thought I knew about the wine versus <laughs> like my experience tasting the wines. Right, right. And that's one of the things also that you start to realize with these, you know, with, with really knowledgeable collectors um, is, is they get so much of this experience. That they're some of the most knowledgeable people out there. 100%. Um, and I, w- one of the things that I, I have to say that I really love – love about the wine business um, that was different than the music business. Um, in the music world, and even though my career was short in the music world, I lived in the music world for a long time, right? And if you're at a table with musicians, uh, if you're not a musician, it's going to be rough, mm-hmm. probably. I mean, unless you're just obsessed with that, with with the minutia of whatever those musicians do, because that's going to be the topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. And most of the people that do it, they're hyper knowledgeable, um, but very focused. Um, there's not a lot of breadth. It's the opposite of a Renaissance man, right? They, <laughs> you know, they have one skill that they've been perfecting for a very very long time, and and that's typically what you know conversation revolves within two or three degrees of that. Mm-hmm. So it's tough when you bring a girlfriend who's not a musician mm-hmm. or a buddy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the wine world, I think, is so fascinating and it's so great because people really come together because they are from a wide, uh, a wide field of, uh, of, of vocations and professions. And this is the thing that brings them all together. Yep. You, know, you have people from, from, from every walk uh, and wine is the thing that they're most passionate about. And in the fine wine world, obviously, you get a lot of really brilliant people. And they have interesting stories that are fascinating, that are different from one to another. And this is the thing for, for many of them that they are, they're just so fascinated with. This is, it, it brings them their joy. And then there's a very old school, um, you know, you, if you want to get to know somebody, break bread with them. Yep. yep. And 100%. that's the positive that wine brings is it builds community. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's really easy, I think, in our world to become, especially the fine wine world. I mean, you worked at Acker. It could be really easy to get jaded and to be like, I'm really adding no value to the planet. Mm-hmm. I am selling uh, now. It's the wines are very expensive. So, so if you wanted to be jaded, you can say, I'm I'm selling incredibly expensive wine to a very limited number of people, and there's some truth to that. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, we want to try to help, you know, expand the number of wines on the lower end. But if you want to say that, and you're like, I'm looking at a spreadsheet, and this stuff's just, I'm just selling expensive wine to rich people. You can be jaded that way. But when you pop a cork and share wine with someone and you really see how how quickly wine builds community mm-hmm. and these people that are passionate about wine, they, they really want that community there too. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I almost think, you know, half the product here is community mm-hmm. and you breaking bread together from, you know, for people that have, you know, a wide array of different opinions and different voices, um, that is a huge positive. And there aren't 
very, to my knowledge, outside of like the wine world, I don't know anything else where you get people from such a wide array of uh, of of play, their places in life where you, you that where people really are being brought together like this, um, and it gives people a point of commonality um, and really builds relationships. It's it's pretty incredible, I think. Now you you hit on a very mm, poignant topic there like it is this it is this beverage that brings us together where we can you know and you can come from all different walks of life and you can have different everything you just said but you know what we can agree this is a good bottle of wine we start talking about that bottle of wine and, and it facilitates conversations that might never happen absolutely otherwise. right and and the community is such a part of that. i mean i i agree with that i think i said if more people would get together have a meal, drink some wine. Um, we'd we'd have a different we'd have a different world if more people would uh, could come together and do that. Well, we're so isolated today. Typically, I mean, it, it, you you may most people probably don't don't get together and have a great conversation with someone who believes something very different than they do. And wine, something that really I, I mean, I, I don't want to get too uh, you know philosophical here, but it, it really is one of the very best community builders I know. And, and I think that goes back for a, a very long time, thousands of years. If you want to get to know your neighbor, break bread. Yep. Yep. I mean, it's, it's you know, I, I, I agree. And we can get philosophical, but I agree. I mean, like literally, uh, you know, and especially in the fine wine world, like you will sit down with people who you could have very different opinions from, but if you are you talking about the wine and there's just a way that you come to see what you agree on instead of what you disagree on. Absolutely right. You know, you don't want to look at people that have a difference of a of point of view as you as the others. Right. And wine is a way where you can build community with people that you uh, th that will let you see them as you, you can see people's humanity in a different way. I mean, right? They go. We're not saving the planet here, but 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 it, it's a, it is a legitimate thing to break bread and share share a great glass with someone. I think. Yeah, you go. He can't be all that bad. He likes this wine. That's no, exactly. Really, right. That's really hey, what you said yourself. At least there's one thing <laughs> we can exactly, agree on, man. Right? Come on. Exactly. <laughs> I totally agree. Uh, you know what? Hang on. We're gonna take a quick break. <clears throat> And then we'll be back with more Ben. So uh, hold that thought. We're going to get into some more stuff. We'll be right back. If you're a fan of the show, you know that there would be no black wine guy experience without Acker Wines. America's oldest wine shop is now the world's destination for fine and rare wine. That's why I want you to go over to their website and check them out. Whether you're seeking the world's finest and rarest bottles or just something for everyday drinking, Acker Wines is the place to go to expand your palate and enhance your personal wine experience. Go to ackerwines.com. That's A-C-K-E-R wines.com. Use the promo code BWG25 to get $25 off any purchase of $100 or more. Retail only. Okay, we're back. So we were just getting all philosophical about how wine brings people together. And then, you know, and then I hear my mother who, who, who my mother's voice saying, that's right. You know, what did Jesus say? Break bread. And, and what did he do? He turned water into wine. I mean, it, First it, miracle. It, it, it's, 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 it's. <laughs> Save the best for last. It, it's come on. Uh, I'm just saying. Um, so let's talk about your journey from sales director to managing director. I mean, this is like quite, you've had, you had quite uh, an ascent there, you know? Well, I mean, I'm tall, so I always started out high, um, <laughs> no. but, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I loved Trebek Wine Merchants. I'd had a lot of, you know, incredible experiences there. And uh, there was a point where 
uh, it was just sort of inevitable I was going to become a partner if, uh, or I was probably going to do my own thing or, or become a partner at one point. And luckily, you know, we found a way that it made sense for me to, to for me to stay on and become the managing partner. And it's it's a, a, a something I feel very blessed with. It's you know I feel very fortunate. Um, there are a lot of really brilliant, talented people, knowledgeable people in the wine business. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of people that could do my, do my job that maybe didn't have the experiences that that I had. Uh, I mean, I, I'm a musician, so like as a kid, I think you know any skill I built, you know, was there was a path involved in that, right? Mm-hmm. And Tropic Wine Merchants gave me a path that let me build my skill sets in a way that. A lot of people probably could have, um, but they didn't have the opportunity. So I, I was very thankful for that. And it's just – it really is a lovely community. And I, also I have to just say Tribeca is ama- an amazing place. Mm-hmm. Um, we opened June uh, right before 9-11. And uh, the community still feels um, – nobody moves. It feels – you know, in, in a place like New York City where it's incredibly easy to feel uh, jaded or alone – or that you're not a part, um, you know. Nobody knows who lives, you know, who's in your building. Nobody knows you. There, there's there's new tenants every. <laughs> the Seinfeld every episode minutes, where Frank months. Kramer's got them wearing. Yeah, exactly. Day right. So you know, know each other. Right. People are moving constantly. <laughs> you know, in Tribeca, it is a real community. I I, I mean, you, I, I walk to the deli. People wave in the street. I mean, it's it's as close to you know where was Andy Griffith, the sheriff of Mayberry. Mayberry. It's yeah. as close yeah. to Mayberry as like I could imagine. Uh, you know, New York City being. <laughs> and, you know. And right. e- even though it's, you know, it- it's a very wealthy neighborhood, it's not people. People live in Tribeca because they don't want all of the services and the who's what's. It's, you know, it's a great school district. So people want want that. But it, it feels uh, it feels different than what like a stereotypical view of, I don't know, like Park Avenue would mm-hmm. feel. You right, know, right. I- I've never worked up there. I don't really know it very well. But um at the very least, it true. It's it's true that it seems like it could be different. Um, people in Tribeca really treat one another very well. There's a real sense of of warmth and community. People, I, I tell you what, um, people coming back into the store now. Toward you know, we're right here towards the knock on wood. Hopefully, the end of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a wine tasting, a small wine tasting in the store the other day, and I can't tell you how how thrilled people were, and it's people we know. Um, it, you know, it's not, you know, the neighborhood itself is not the uh, primary focus of the business. It, you know, it's a small neighborhood. People move or, or, or people are, are away a lot. It, it's slow. Uh, you know, if walking through Tribeca doesn't feel like walking through New York City, right? There's not a million people on the streets. All the apartments are huge, so not a ton of people live there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we've always, you know, sort of, you know, look, we sell Great wine all over all over the country, all over, all over the world. But the neighborhood itself feels incredible. I mean, it really it feels very lucky to be a part of of that place. Um, the neighborhood went through a lot after nine eleven, and there's there's a and then also by the way after the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, Citigroup's very close to us. You know, there's a, there's a lot of financial services companies right around there. A lot of people work in that industry, and they went through hell. And, and what know, about uh, Sandy? Did was there flooding down? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we were lucky that it didn't quite reach to us, but okay. there were a couple of buildings on the edge that, mm-hmm. that got that got hit. But there, there's a, a real feeling of community there, and uh, that I don't know that you have that in every in every neighborhood. You know, people go to Tribeca and, and they want to stay. They want to live mm-hmm. there. They, it's it's an amazing place. So, 
let's talk a little bit about <clears throat> some of the what would you say are some of the similarities between wine and music, particularly like uh, classical orchestral music that you were into. Well, I mean, there's there there is a lot. If I put the nail, you know, if I'd hit the nail on the head, I think probably they both bring intellectual and hedonistic pleasure. Uh, okay. I mean, Beethoven is both incredibly joyous to live to listen to. You know, Copeland is incredible. You know, brings me so much joy and happiness. But they're also they also hit all of the intellectual buttons. I mean, they are just fascinating, and they are towering works of humanity. I mean, the the great works of music are some of the very finest things that I think you know humans have have done have have done on this earth that are responsible for, and and wine can be that similar uh, hedonistic pleasure and intel- that also hits all of these sort of intellectual buttons. Um, you know, look, if it's just about pleasure, you know, I love diet, I love a, a diet Dr. Pepper and a plate of barbecue, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, that's just pure outright hedonism. Um, I don't know how much more there is to unwind, right? You get it all on the first bite. I mean, heck, you can just walk into the restaurant and you're like, yeah. oh, I, know this, I know exactly what yeah. I'm getting here. Yeah. Whereas, you know, watching a wine develop over years or develop over time. I mean, if you've got six bottles of a great bottle of a great wine, um, Watching what happens to that wine over 20 years is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Watching mm-hmm. what happens to, to a bottle over the course of several hours can be really mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention, you know, we the, the fact that, you know, I mean, even, even take Chardonnay, how incredibly different it can be made in a pretty close to the same way from one vineyard to another vineyard that's 100 yards away. And mm-hmm. we really have no answer why. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have a lot of understanding there. there. There's a lot of magic that happens in in winemaking and, and in the wine world. Uh, you know, why is it that one vineyard is, you, you know, displays a given, a given set of characteristics and then 100 yards away it may, the same grape varietal made exactly the same way by the same person with the same yields might show something very different. And that's just fascinating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not to mention, it's always changing. Mm-hmm. You have new wine producers that are that are coming in. You have new uh, appellations that are being treated in different ways. You have changes in generation. So if you if you like something that isn't static, if you want to always have to be learning, wine is that. Yeah. Because if your knowledge yep. of wine is, uh, you know, Sherry Lehman circa 1997, it is very very different than today. Um, <laughs> it, 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 and and that that's fascinating to me. I love that. Speaking of fascinating, I, I poured some of this 07 and then my producer just saw my face. My I just make like ooh, like a fuck face or something. Like, oh, like just faces just all scrunched up. Just you know what I mean. Like my toes just curled. Um, yeah, I'm going to pour a little here. Yeah. That's uh, more than a little bit. I'll... Yeah, that's, you brought it. <laughs> um, I mean, just again, it's well, white burgundy, but... It's got some age on it, and just the nuttiness, the the waxiness, the the intensity. You with Dovenet, you get an intensity that you get with only a handful of other white wines on the planet. Um, I mean, this is Ozy Duress, so it, it's Le Clou, so it's a little Ludi, but a village Ozy. It's basically our front yard at Dovenet, mm-hmm. um, but it's a humble appellation. 
you know, I, I think fr- it's a great story. You know, like Francois Frere, like brings her uh, groceries, you know. Oh, no, tell the story, I mean. please, because I'm uh, sure I got listeners at all levels, but I'm, there's so – even like intermediate people probably don't know like these great stories. So I, would, yeah. I, I mean – Domain, you know, Lalubi's Loire, you yep. know, for a lot of people, I think, for me, um, is maybe the – I don't know if you can call her a winemaker, you know, magician or uh, – sh- 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 she's a force like no other and she impacts her wines in a way that I, I don't know. A wine know. wizard, I'm trying she's to She's a wine wizard. Oh, yeah. that's probably the best yeah. way to say it. She's a, She is a wine wizard and, and you don't understand what's happening. But, you know, this is her home domain. Uh, Dovene. She's obviously also in charge of, you know, Domaine Loire, and then she's the co-owner of Domaine de la Romani Conti. And the Domaine Loire wines are absolutely extraordinary. Um, but there's something really special about Dovene. And what I love about this is this is really her, you know, Dovene is an Ozy de which is, you know, a little outerlying Appalachian, sort of on the other side of Merceau. But okay. it's not in it's not where you think the great white burgundies are. Chasseau Marche, Pluny Marche, Merceau, maybe Courton for Courton this is, you know, if you're driving the, you know, the route de van, you're not even going to, you're not even going to see OZ, right? Um, and for most, most people, OZ is a, you know, $30 bottle of, bottle of white burgundy that, you know, they may, they're not quite sure how to pronounce it. I think I'm pronouncing it right. Oxy, I'm, I'm a uh, oxy duress. You know I say it the way I say it. That's the way I can say <laughs> yeah, it. it um, <laughs> but um, this wine for me, even though it's this very humble outerlying appellation, uh, there really are only, I don't know, three or four wines that – white wines from Burgundy I think that can be this extraordinary. And they're all uh, – you know, it's DRC Montrachet, Coche – Corton Charlemagne, Coche Marisol Perrier, um, maybe some wines – you know, some tippy-top wines from a couple of other mm-hmm. producers, mm-hmm. but always the top pinnacle appellations. And this is Ozzy. This is Ozzy Duress. If you know, I I use the blind you know uh, anecdote a lot. If you you know, if you had five people going to a restaurant and uh, it was exp- an expensive meal, and you said, you know what, how about whoever wins the blind pays for dinner, or or, or uh, everybody else has to pay for dinner, and uh, you know the guy who wins the blind doesn't. It's gonna be really expensive. If I saw and I brought a DRC Montrachet, mm-hmm. and I saw someone else had a Dovenet. Ozzy duress, and it was going to be blind. I would be really nervous. Right. <laughs> I would be really nervous that their Ozzy might beat my DRC Marsha because I guarantee it can in a given vintage, not every year. Mm-hmm. And but moreover, the fact that you could pour that thing blind next to it and 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 even come close to approaching it right. is extraordinary. And I th- I think it sort of shows what the ceiling is on some of these outer line, some of these villages that we used to not really take that seriously. I mean. Part of the fate of these villages was sort of self-determined. You know, it's a chicken and the egg scenario. What happened? You know, did they not plant? Did they, did they not pay the most attention to their vineyards or use low yields because they were in a non-famous appellation and so they weren't going to get much money? Or did they not get much money because they weren't making <laughs> doing great yields? Um, this kind of this wine shows, I, I think, what can happen when you give top-notch, you know, sort of pinnacle-level winemaking and, and uh, wine farming to some of these other a- appellations. And, you know, people like Durijantial, I think, and Rui are uh, – and I'd say like Bruno – like Lorenzon and Mercure. Those are people that are seeing what La Lubie's Loire does and says, wow, um, 
we might be able to do something special. And you know, it's actually funny. I, I poured this this Rui at my wedding, the 2014, okay. uh, at my wedding, and, and it was one of my favorite. I just absolutely love the wine. And then I was actually on a visit with Domaine at Domaine Loire, and uh, Gilles, who is the, you know president or some who's he what's it at Domaine Loire. Really nice guy. Uh, has been in the store before, so I sort of knew him. And I, and I was early. Um, the importer, who's a good good buddy of mine, was running late. and was like, hey, Ben, can you run over there? Because, you know, Gilles is going to be waiting for us. So I ran over and we were, you know, just chatting. And, uh, you know, Gilles, uh, you know, I, I'm, of course, incredibly excited to taste the new vintage of Domaine Loire. <laughs> uh, and Gilles, you know, we're, we're chatting. He's like, hey, do you know Durijant, y'all? And I was just like, what? And I was thrilled because I got to say, oh, my God, I do know Durijant, y'all. I poured it at my wedding. And he goes, oh, my God, they're some of my very favorite wines. And then you come to find uh, there's a great quote where Jean-Francois Cochetary talks about how anytime he's on a on – a, at a restaurant in Burgundy, if he sees Durijant on the menu, he's buying it. I mean, don't so you love that? I like, love that. Like, like, like a winemaker's wine. Like, a, absolutely. Yeah, like, like, I love winemakers' wines. You know, I, that's absolutely. Th- those are the gems. Like, and and, and in Burgundy, I think it's especially um, <clears throat> uh, really telling because there's just the cost of Burgundy has skyrocketed, right? So, and these people, like, like I'm. The producers, they have their own stash of wine, of course. But for them to go out and be like, oh, no, I'm drinking that. That's when you know. Like, I had to be oh, like a so huge cool. validation for you when he said, do you know this wine? You're oh, like, and I got to feel – I got to – it made me feel like I knew something. I was like, <laughs> wow, I, I, I actually do know this wine. I was so thrilled. But, yeah, I mean, you know, people – if you store wine at any pro, at any price point, right? Like if you're buying a case of wine because you want to you, you want to, you know, put it away and see what happens, you're really doing that for hope, right? Right. You th- you hope and you think something yep. Yep. really incredible might happen. If you, if you wanted it for certainty, you'd do something else, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're bringing the unknown in, right? You don't know what's going to happen in 10 years. Whereas if I taste this today, if I taste this New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc today and say, okay, I'm going to buy that exactly exact same bottle. It's under screw cap. I'm going to take it home. And it's going to t- taste really close to exactly the same. But you're you're buying a case of wine. You're going to put it away for a little while. It's because you think there might be something more. There might be something unknown you haven't reached yet. And uh, when people do that, it's the ceiling that matters, right? Like how high could this thing go? How interesting could this thing go? And I think for a long time, people didn't they didn't really treat a lot of these sort of lesser known places very seriously mm-hmm. because they didn't think the the ceiling was very high but the ceiling probably wasn't very high cuz most of the winemakers um i mean look they're they're trying to feed their families and that usually meant we need to make more wine on our 3 hectare not less wine mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but that also impacts the the quality of the wine there's no doubt and there wasn't there wasn't it wasn't necessarily clear you were going to get more money if you say I, you know what i'm going to make half the production, really you'll lower my yields, but the wine's going to be way better. It, you didn't really know you were going to be able to pay for that. I mean, what was your wife going to say? Oh, we're making half the wine. Are we going to get more money for it? Or are you just telling me that I can't <laughs> buy groceries next week? Um, but I think, you know, this bottle from Dauvinet and some of the others are, they're showing what can, how incredibly high the ceiling can be. And they're Look with climate change too. By the way, we're gonna yep. have to start looking around. Yep. We don't necessarily know what's going on. Right. You know, we've got this window right now that we're sort of in transition. But I, I remember it. I was doing a visit at Domaine Lafave a couple a few years ago, and you know there'd been some 
Primox problems with, with domain flev and uh, that were that have been concerning. And I asked them what their opinion of it was. You know, what were some of the causes that they thought? And they talked about like the different the different harvest times. And, and Laflev is very old, um, but they had gone something like a hundred years without harvesting in August. Like it was some incredible time frame mm-hmm. where their vineyards had not been harvested in the month of August. And because of climate change, starting in the very, very late 90s, you know, they had one vintage that was done in August. And then it was like seven, eight, nine, ten. It, it, it's incredible. Uh, the way climate change is impacting a lot of our favorite wine regions. And look, uh, wherever you were, especially in the old in the old world, you know, these are really northerly Appalachians, right? Like Bordeaux is Bordeaux is really one of the more southern uh, famous wine regions in France, right? That's mm-hmm. the latitude of Minneapolis-St. Paul, right? Good so, I, I mean, we're talking north, <laughs> and we think of, oh, well, that that's Cabernet country. You know, the, it, it, the terroir is hot there. No, 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 no. Um, and so all, you know, all the best sites, and particularly if you think Piedmont, if you think um, in the Mosul River Valley, if, if you think uh, – you know, Burgundy, certainly, you know, uh, some, some in Champagne as well. A lot of the most famous vineyard sites um, were all southerly facing, southerly facing you mm-hmm. know, or it was w- wines where you got the most sun, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. vineyards where you got the most sun. And I, I don't know that that's necessarily made true going forward. I mean, in Piedmont, they're having loads of discussions about changing some of the Appalachians. Um, they're, they're all, they're going to, you know, in Piedmont, they're also talking about maybe, maybe one day we're going to need to irrigate. I mean, that's like sacrilegious stuff. But it's all also means that, um, there are going to be places that didn't necessarily make world-class wine or hadn't yet that might start. Well, I mean, we're seeing that. I mean, there was always potential in the Finger Lakes. We've seen stuff in the Finger Lakes. Virginia has really – because, I mean, I had, a, I had a Merlot Petit Verdot blend out of Virginia, which I would never – if it was a blind taste, I would never thought the wine was from Virginia. I, I mean, I hear there's this ridge of limestone and like on Lake Ontario that, that – has a ton of potential, and that's sort of a different piece of the of the question too, which is also really interesting. Which is, you know, one of the reasons the old world places we know where they where they make great wine is because they've had four hundred, five hundred years to discuss yeah. it or longer. You yeah, know? I mean, the monks spent four hundred years charting charting vineyards in Burgundy. We didn't do that in the U.S., no, right? No, we th- we're very very young. All of the New World. Do we really know that you know Napa and Sonoma and Santa Barbara are the best places to to grow grapes? We know it's the best places we've found in the very limited time frame that we've searched. So it's really, you know, we're learning a lot more about that. And it's really exciting to think about what those other places might be. For sure. For sure. Um, let's uh, flip gears a little bit. Um, you spent some time in Berlin, um, three years as a wine advisor? Or is, is my research oh, off? Oh, gosh. You know, okay. I... I advised an auction how I, I can't even remember that I did that. There was there was a wine auction company that I that, that I worked with a little bit and, and uh, they would they would ask my help to effectively uh, price out wine sellers okay. and tell them if it was worth doing. Okay, okay. It, it, it's such an asterisk on what I, on okay. what I've done. I can't. It's hard for me to. Speak. I oh, wish I'd spent more time in Berlin. Okay, you it sounds like you should that. have a great story. I know. Like I, was, I, was, cabaret, I, was, like, I was thinking like, did you have to wear black? Was it like now's the time we did? Like, it was like sprockets or something like that. You know. Sounds like a great like, but some really small glasses, like a re- yeah. black suit, <laughs> thin black tie. Could be a new look for me. <laughs> oh my god. Um, so. We're enjoying this amazing French wine, these Burgundies. Um, 
Tell us about uh, why you joined the fight against the wine tariffs and your work with the uh, U.S. Trade Wine Trade Alliance. Uh, well, initially, self-preservation, I think, was my main motivating factor. Um, you know, our business, uh, we sell, you know, the vast majority of the wine we sell is, you know, from the old world. Yeah. Um, and most of them were impacted by tariffs on wine. Um, but I remember, I, I don't have a very healthy appetite for risk. Um, I don't enjoy it. And, um. Uh, I had heard when I remember hearing rumblings about in you know in 2019 about wines being potentially tariffed, and uh, I knew some people that worked in um, government that told me it was something I should take really seriously. And uh, I think around around May uh, there was there was a hearing in May that effectively of 2019 that effectively no one from the wine business went to. Um, we basically didn't understand that this that the federal government could be a threat to us because mm -hmm. most laws that uh, impact the wine business, the, the wine industry are state laws, right? Because mm -hmm. of the repeal of prohibition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there is no overlying, you know, federal uh, agency that oversees, you know, the wine business. In every state, there is some kind of agency that, o that oversees our industry. So we never look at the federal government as being a risk. Mm -hmm. um, and, then a couple of months later, you know, I, I heard it was, you know, being considered. And then a couple of months later in July, uh, I think I read, in, maybe my dad sent me a story that said Trump's considering 100% 100 tariff on all European wines. And I was like, oh, my God, this is terrible. And I started reading about, uh, you know, sort of the underlying issue, which was this fight between Boeing and Airbus. And uh, I understood pretty quickly that our industry, you know, the wine industry, effectively means nothing uh, to the powers that be, especially when you're talking about Boeing. Boeing is is one of the most powerful companies in the <clears throat> they U.S. They make airplanes, not just commercial exactly. airplanes. That's exactly right. Well, they're, they're also America's largest exporter. So I knew if we were getting into an argument uh, with the EU about something like this, we were, we were in trouble. Um, so I start, but but I'm a I'm a wine retailer in New York City, right? This yeah. is above my pay grade. Yeah. I assume there is one big giant wine lobbying whoosie what's it that's probably funded by Empire and Southern, and they know everybody, Shit. and they've got everybody <laughs> on a cell phone, and I'm assuming they're in Palm Beach, you know, doing something really fun and exciting. They're, they're down at Mar Lago, yeah, working exactly, it out. exactly right, <laughs> exactly right. And I just sort of assumed that that's the way it worked. And so I, so I started talking with um, a lot of the people at the NAWR, the National Association of Wine Retailers, about my concerns and then a few other people about my concerns, uh, you know, the distributors that I knew. And look, most of the distributors I know that, you know, probably the distributors, the guys you know, right? Like they're the fine wine world, which, you know, they're incredible successes in our world, but it's, it's they're not the big giant uh, na they're not the big giant distributors, right? Right. right. Um, I mean, the wine business is small. Like the reality is, we're very small. The largest companies, Southern Wine and Spirits, I think they have twenty two thousand employees. Amazon probably has twice that number of job openings on LinkedIn. <laughs> Just um, <laughs> Southern or, or Breakthrough Beverage is like the what? Like the second? Maybe they've got six thousand employees. That's like the HR department at J P Morgan. Yeah. We are tiny. Yep. Tiny. Yep. Apple has more cash than like the GDP of France. Yeah. Um, but we assumed, and I assumed, all of us in this sort of world assumed, 
well, gosh, there are these, you know, the big giant wine guys that have so much money involved. They have all of the connections. They have everybody on speed dial. And to a degree, that's true. In all the states, they do, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. um, that's, again, that's, that's who they lobby. They, mm-hmm. the, the state governments are the ones that pass laws that oversee what we do. I think most of them are dumb, but uh, that's a different story. I but, know. We'll have to have but, you back yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, um, But the reality is, is, is that they we have our industry has not spent almost any time cultivating uh, relationships in Washington because they don't impact us. So we had we, we had no allies, none whatsoever. Um, and then there was another hearing that went terribly for us because effectively the USTR, the U.S. Trade Representative, was asking, "Which gosh, we got this big problem with Boeing? What products should we tariff?" And they gave this huge giant list of stuff. Ours was like a third of it. And basically nobody from the wine industry showed up. And and ever whereas like one textile product was listed and there were like five textile people testifying about the damage <laughs> it would do to, to – or, or not even just textiles, which is a huge industry, but right. like some tiny – like we make ceramic tiles that go behind your oven. You know, like something right. very specific. Right. And right. even they had like loads right. of people right. like, oh, crap. This right. is terrible. But we had nobody. Um, and so sure enough, my uh, – I, I talked to a couple of friends that, you know, were working in government at the time. Um, and, and I wanted to really know how serious is this? And it became more and more clear between, you know, August and September that this was going to happen. And uh, in the beginning, the first thing I was told is it is almost certainly going to be 100 percent. And uh, it looked like it was going to be Airbus is mainly in France. But, you know, it's a French company, but uh, they also do business in Germany and in the UK and in Spain. Um, You know, it's the most important business for the EU. It's the EU's largest export. It's the largest company in the EU that exports products, I believe. But what I was hearing was going to be 100% on wines from France. Mm-hmm. And that's – you, uh, it, like it's pick up and go home day, yeah, right? That, that was going to be a wrap. percent That's a wrap. You're cause, done. Cause I mean – Your $10 what? cheap Bordeaux is now um, $20. Like, I mean, oh, exactly I mean, right. I mean it's, it's a wrap uh, at uh, that point. Oh, exactly. And look, we had done a lot of business overseas. We do a lot of business overseas and, and we I'd taken a trip to Hong Kong thinking, um, you know, this might be a really great – or, or look, this is another avenue for us potentially, and it, it's it's a great uh, wine community there, mm-hmm, and we've mm-hmm. done business there, uh, and you know I've, I've been there before, but you know one of our you know great employees is you know came from another business, you know Lauren Fake came from a business in Hong Kong, but uh, it was October, of tw- it was like October of 2019 or November of 2019 when I went to Hong Kong, and by so. Hong Kong was in flux because of the battle with Ch- – effectively, you know, the protests and the battle with China. And then COVID happened. What was going to happen right after? Um, but they enacted 25 percent. So I was I was one of the only people that was thrilled when I heard it was 25 percent on wines, you know, under – you know, 14 percent or under. Um, but it was still devastating. And I thought pretty quickly um, – there are loads of people and loads of businesses in the U.S. at the time that were impacted negatively by tariffs. And if we didn't do something about it, uh, no one else was going to fight our battle for us. Mm-hmm. It was almost a zero-sum game, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If uh, if we get our tariffs taken off, they were going to tariff something else. You know, there's there a little bit of that. So um, it was clear we needed to we needed we needed to tell Congress why this was a bad idea. Because it sounds really easy, right? It's like, 
well, look, the only people you're hurting are French businesses or, or, or businesses in Germany and the UK. Um, but because of the weird way the wine business works in the US, because of this three-tier system that we have, you actually do more economic damage to US businesses than to businesses overseas when you tariff mm-hmm. wine. Mm-hmm. I mean, effectively, the opportunity cost of all, uh, you know, here in the United States, you do like a dollar forty damage to American businesses, most of which are, by the way, small, family-owned right. businesses. Right, right, right. For every dollar of harm we inflict on businesses in the European Union. So that makes wine a terribly ineffective way to convince the EU to come to an agreement about, you know, the large civil aircraft matter or anything else. They know we're doing more harm to us. Than we are to them, mm-hmm. but the U.S. didn't know that. Right. Uh, the you know the USTR, the U.S. Trade Representative didn't understand the way the three tier system worked. Nobody in Congress did, um, and so the U.S. Wine Trade Alliance was started uh, with you know a lot of the the very best importers and distributors and uh, fine wine retailers and restaurants, and you know we were working on it and. You know, we, we've been working hard on this issue, and there's you know a great team of people. And I think Harmon and Jeff Zachariah actually asked me if I would, because I'd been working on tariffs for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'd been spending a lot of time on it because I realized the the magical empire and Southern people weren't doing anything effectively. Right. Right. Um, I, I, as, as a matter of fact, I called many times and asked, "What are you doing?" And they and they said, "There's really nothing you can do." And they're so like, <laughs> "We're selling this vodka." And, 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 yeah, yeah, exactly. They're like, "Would you like some peanut butter?" Exactly. Whiskey? And I'm like, "We're no. selling tequila. Um, we're, we're, good. <laughs> we're good. We're good. Yeah, we're good, baby." Um, <laughs> No, I don't want any peanut butter whiskey. I'm fine. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, the, you know, some of the people that I knew in D.C. and my wife had actually um, – she had worked in D.C. after right after college. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she, she put me in touch with a couple of other people as well who worked in you know, think tanks or you know, just had that experience. This and they're a like, crazy world. Like people don't – people like you – people don't understand the way government works. Like think tanks. Exactly right. And, and position papers and like, like – I went to law school, so I have some understanding, but people don't understand how this shit works, man. Like you said, like lobbying groups, like you're like, we, you guys know, had no lobby. You had no, why would you be in DC? It may, I mean, what you said makes sense. There was, there's no federal regulation of alcohol, but for, you know, ATF, but, but for, but, you know, so it, it would make no sense for there to be an association. And then, like you said, but everybody else has got an association is in DC. You know, the Italian tile association was there. That's exactly right. You know? They were there making sure that, you know, like. The Cruze and Staub people, man. <laughs> exactly right. I mean, they were telling the government the devastation. Like, literally, I listened to the head of, you know, the former president of Cruze. Mm-hmm. I love Cruze, great company. Yep. Talk about the devastation that would come to this rural area of South Carolina if they uh, in- implemented tariffs. On their products, because France was the only place that could make uh, the material that you know the Crusades from. Um, and sure enough, there was n- they put no tariff on those. Products. <laughs> um, and meanwhile, we had you know we had nobody doing anything essentially. But but um, for the people who buy Crusade drink French wine. They do exactly. And then <laughs> look after the tariffs went into effect. Everything, you know, the world changed in the wine world. Everybody understood how mm-hmm. incredibly devastating this was. And I have to say, like one of the coolest experiences was there was. Uh, you know, there was actually another tariff that, that we we actually helped convince them not to put in. And it was a tariff on all uh, sparkling wine from France, so champagne. So they had threatened and proposed a 100% tariff on all sparkling wine from France. And this was 
you know, they announced it in December of 2019, you know, so after they put the still wine tariff in. So at that point, the wine industry knew. All these people knew in, in the wine industry. Oh, holy crap. The government can do this. They give us a venue t- for us to tell them why they shouldn't. We should probably take advantage of that. And there was a hearing in January. I think it was January 7th of 2020. And uh, I knew that we were going. The I was speaking with some people from the National Association of Wine Retailers. And so I knew Jeff Zachariah and I were going to testify there. And then I saw there were a couple of really great uh, wine distributors. I knew David Bowler was going to testify. Um, David Waldenberg from BNP, who represents the New York Fine Wine Alliance, which is a lot of, you know, sort of the your favorite wine distributors, right? Like, um, you know, the Skernicks and the Bowlers and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't just those guys. There were, I think there were over 20 wine small family-owned wine businesses that testified, which was absolutely incredible. And I think at least two-thirds, if not three-fourths of the entire hearing were uh, small business owners from the wine community telling the USTR how devastating these tariffs would be to U.S. businesses. And that was incredibly powerful. And that just sort of happened organically. Um, you know, we didn't have – there was no mailing list with mm-hmm. everybody's name on it at that point. Uh, you know, ev- everybody sort of knew each other and the word got out, but it wasn't organized. Um, and it was really absolutely, uh, absolutely incredible and it made a huge impact. And afterwards, we 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 thought, you know, we needed to get organized. And, uh, you know, the, U- the USWTA, the, you know, the US Wine Trade Alliance, you know, formed – and then started doing, you know, sort of the block and tackle lobbying and advocacy work that is really critical if uh, you want to have any influence on what the U.S. government does. Yeah, I, I think I, I found it interesting um, that uh, they were doing they were going to do so much damage to small businesses. Right. And we talk about the American spirit. We talk about, uh, you know. Uh, you know, uh, are the grid of America, but like literally you have this huge corporation, huge, huge, huge. We're a capitalist country going to the government for help and would, would have just obliterated so many businesses just for their own. Well, and you know, it's profit. I mean, like, I mean, I mean, literally like it's okay because we have shareholders. It's okay if we put all these people out of business as long as we turn a profit this quarter. And and the government was going to allow that. That's just so the, the, the what's the word when not just just the it's, it's almost it's the, the hypocrisy of it. Well, you know, it's it's funny. The um, it's really unusual to tariff products that have no similarity, right? Yep. So typically the way it would have worked is, all right, we think the EU did this bad thing with Airbus that was bad for Boeing. And Boeing's really important for us. All right, so we're going to tariff Airbus products. Right. But guess what? Wine people didn't have any allies in Congress, but you know who did? Airbus. Yeah. yeah. Airbus is a French company, yep. and they had more US Congress people speaking up for in them their pocket. than American <laughs> businesses did. Now, the good thing was, you know, even even Boeing wasn't happy with it, right? right? Because they ended up putting a 25% tariff on wines and Boeing's like, well, what the crap do we care about wines? And they only put a 15% tariff on – or actually in the beginning, it was only 10% on, on Airbus itself. So even even Boeing was like, what are you guys doing? Yeah, that's crazy. But, you know, Richard Shelby was a powerful senator in Alabama. Airbus has a, gives him a ton of money. There's an Airbus facility in Alabama. Um, I'm not saying there was any involvement there, but – it's true. It is a story. 
Uh, Airbus is one of the most powerful company, companies in the EU, but also in the United States. And it's just a fact. Hmm. So the fact that they were sort of the cause of the problem or illegal subsidies were to Airbus were the cause of the problem and they weren't the people that were, mo that, were that felt the brunt of the punishment was really frustrating for us. Um, but it was a story not many people knew. But the good news was we found that you know people on both sides of the aisle really quickly got up to speed and said, wow, mm -hmm. this is ridiculous. Uh, I mean, there are you know, 47,000 small you know, wine retailers in the US we're something like – we average like six employees a person, a wine retailer in the United States. Mm -hmm. The laws that go around how the USTR is supposed to implement a tariff are, are supposed to specifically take into consideration damage to small and medium-sized businesses. And they completely ignored it at the time. They – you're supposed to put tariffs on – you know, there's an understanding that large, massive companies have a, more of a capacity to absorb that damage than smaller or medium-sized businesses. So you're mm -hmm. supposed to take that in consideration. Mm -hmm. They completely ignored it, put much larger tariffs on products that impacted us than they did on Airbus itself, which is both massive and at fault. Um, but we were able to get, you know, huge numbers of uh, – from both sides of the aisle to, to help our cause. You know, we had more than 165 members of the House representatives, both sides of the aisle, write the USTR, say, please – saying, please – and, these, and the tariffs on all of these wine products. We had 13 senators, which is really difficult to get, write a letter to the USTR saying, this does incredible damage to US businesses. You've got to undo this. Um, and, you know, knock on wood, uh, you know, we also, by the way, had record-breaking uh, outreach to the USTR themselves. The USTR puts, puts out a, a public comment period for any proposed tariffs, right? And usually they'll get two or 300 comments, maybe six or 900. Uh, the first time we did it, we had, I think, 27,000 comments specifically against tariffs on wine. And then the, the last round, the last open comment period, we had more than 30,000 comments. They actually had to develop an entirely new website to accept comments from the public because of the extraordinary response from the wine industry. I mean, that is incredible. I mean, it is absolutely stunning. One of the members of the USDR actually called me at one point and said, look, just our email is public. You know, I'm a public servant. I uh, And by the way, like the block and tackle staff at USTR are not to blame, right? Mm -hmm. I, I do mm -hmm. think at the time there were, you know, there were some issues with some of the political appointees at USTR that made some really bad decisions. And once once you make a bad decision, they didn't want to own it, right? Right. If, they, if the USTR at the time in 2020, Robert Lighthizer had reversed course, it would have been – it would have signaled an error and a failure. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to do that. But some of the, the block and tackle staff who really do care about the damage that they may do, you know uh, – a couple of them wrote me and were like, look, you know, we're public servants. We would never tell the public not to email us about their concerns. Just, you know, if, if you have a couple of distributors or importers that want to write me, that's okay. But please, please don't tell everybody to email me. <laughs> please go through the public comment. Please don't. I, we, they're like, we know 10,000 people will write us yep. if you guys ask. Yep. Please, please go through this other thing so we, so we don't f get our in inboxes flooded. But um, thankfully – you know, we ha had a large number of allies, both sides of the aisle. A new USTR, um, Catherine Tai, was put in place um, by the Biden administration. And luckily, Catherine Tai, we actually knew. Um, you know, 
I had a, I had a, an early meeting with Catherine Ty in January of 2020 because mm-hmm. she was actually the chief um, sort of trade counsel for the chairman of Ways and Means. Okay. Uh, so she was already experienced, already knew the, knew the issue, mm-hmm. um, totally up to date. And, you know, at this time, you know, they put a pause on the tariffs, a four-month pause on the tariffs to, to let the, – they understood what the damage was, was happening. So even though they haven't totally resolved the Airbus-Boeing issue, um, it's an incredibly complicated case. It's been going on, you know, since the Bush administration, right? So – it, it was. It's going to take a while for them to, you know, dot all of the I's, cross all of the T's. Um, but they understood the economic impact that this was happening, or that 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 was happening here. And uh, so they put. They've right now. They put a pause for about four months, and we're hopeful that they're going to be able to fully resolve this, and hopefully understand that wine is a, an incredibly ineffective product to tariff. And you do more damage to U.S. businesses, mostly small family-owned businesses, than businesses overseas. So, how did uh, Tribeca wine merchants um, survive this storm? You had tariffs and then COVID hit. So, how were you affected by the COVID uh, pandemic? I mean, uh, boy, what a year, man. (laughs) Fuck. And I have to say, like, how amazing. I mean, I'm I'm vaccinated. I'm sure you guys are vaccinated. It it, it feels incredible to be able to, you know, I get back to the community bit, right? That's the hardest thing. Sit down and drink wine with people. Break bread, share a bottle of wine without, without fear. And and not just the fear that you were going to get sick. I had, I had COVID and it was no fun at all. Um, but it was really the fear that you might get someone else sick. That right. was terrifying. Well, at least for me. You know what absolutely. I mean? I don't want to get anybody sick. You know? No, exactly. It was absolutely terrifying. Um, so it just feels so great to be able to, you know, share. share. And I'm just starting. We're just sort of starting doing this again. My, my wife and I were really careful. We had very limited, con, you know, very limited meals or contacts with, you know, outside of our little pod. Mm-hmm. Um, so it feels pretty amazing. You know, it's such a luxury to be able to go outside meet a couple of friends, open a bottle of wine. It, it, it's, it's incredible. And, yeah. you know, give somebody a hug. I know. You know it, it, like, I know. It feels amazing. I remember my first trip to California. First time on a plane. Second time on a plane. Um, back in... Ever or just... April. Yeah, no. Yeah, no I've been on a good. plane once or twice. <laughs> um, uh, we're not going to talk about that. It was something, you know, CIA. No, just kidding, guys. Um, but, uh, like, literally... Met someone new and they were like, I'm vaccinated. They're like, can I give you a hug? They're like, I, w- I haven't hugged a stranger in a year and a half. Like, like, oh, yeah. I mean, like, and I was like, oh, my God, it's so true. You know, like, you used to just shake someone's hand, you know, you like, you know, and I'm a, hu- I'm a hugger. So I give people a hug. And it was like, uh, you know, you give them the elbow or just, you know. Um, but, yeah, did did COVID-19, did it affect your business uh, at all? Because, you, you know what I mean, uh, you you live in a, you have sure. a neighborhood type store, so people were probably used to coming in, and, right? And 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 just um, being with you guys. You know, uh, if you had a told if you had told me what was going to happen and how we would have had to respond, or if you'd told me, for instance, that Tribeca, where we're located, would effectively poof flee, right? I don't know if there's a neighborhood that had more people leave than, than Tribeca did. Um, I don't know what I would have said. Uh, it, concern would have been, <laughs> would have been present. But yeah, in the, in the context of, I think, the overall devastation in our community, particularly for restaurants, um, it's really hard for me to 
you know, th- this was a challenging time, but I just have to be thankful as a business. Mm-hmm. You know, we were fine. We didn't have to let any employees go during the pandemic. Uh, you know, we were able to keep everybody everybody's hours up. Um, every, things changed a lot, right? Um, I mean, Tribeca basically had no one in it for quite some time, mm. you know, basically a year. Um, it's still slowly coming back. But, you know, the most of our business is always, you know, is done through email and website and things like that. So, you know, the wine market was actually doing well. Um, yeah, because people were drinking more. People were drinking. Uh, exactly right. It's not so clear cut the way, you know, I've, I've heard some people talk about how like all retailers are doing amazing and, uh, and, it's, and it's the best part of the world. And that's not necessarily true. I mean, there are loads of small wine retailers. You know, I, I work with – I'm on the board of the National Association of Wine Retailers and there are a lot of wine retailers that did terribly. I mean, you could imagine – and it was so sad. You, you could imagine, right, if you have a small, uh, small wine shop in downtown Cleveland, right, and you're next to two giant office buildings – Mm-hmm. And that was your business, yep. you know, and you had that business for 25 years. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, all of the lawyers, all of the office uh, office people that work there, well, they're not coming to work anymore because the office buildings are going to be shut down for a year. There's, they may be buying a lot of wine, but they were buying it from wine.com or they, they, were, wine, buy, they, were, they were buying it from somebody else. They weren't buying it from that small mm-hmm. local person. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, there are lots of retailers. Like if, if you were in a place that – Usually only – if you were in the Berkshires, right, and usually people only lived there three months a year. Well, now they were there 12 months a year, so you did great. Right. Um, but for us, it, it was fine. It was really difficult for us to see, you know, some of the, you know, the hardship in Tribeca. And the real – but if, if you're – if you made it to the other side, I think you just have to think you're blessed. And, and seeing the devastation in the restaurant industry was just – Terrifying. I mean, that was just so sad. Uh, I remember I had a, you know a friend of mine call me, um, who was a sommelier, and he was starting uh, an advocacy organization for sommeliers to try to you know find some way to fund so many of these people that, that were out of work. Mm-hmm. And I remember he was you know wanting to talk to me about it, and um, he said at one point, you know, because all of the sommeliers have been fired. Sort of a startling comment. But, you know, there was basically a day where almost every hospitality person in the country lost their job. Uh, that's It's hard to fathom, right? I, I mean, what event could you see precipitating something like that? Uh, uh, it's not something I, I could have I, ever I mean, we we have Wall Street crashes and nobody loses their fucking job. They get bonuses. Or, they, or they get some huge, of them do, but yeah, some of them make right, a ton. Exactly, exactly, exactly right. right. You right. know what I mean? Like, like but like, like wholesale, no, like exactly right. Just like, people losing their job. You're all gone. No, it's it's awful. And and even when restaurants started to open back up, uh, and that's one of the con- real concerns I have is you know so many restaurants have learned. Well, look, they started doing business again now without wine staff, without profession and professional knowledgeable wine staff. Right. Get used to that. Right. I think we all knew we were in this incredible, like New York City, but in the US in general, but New York City was in this incredible golden era of restaurants and end of wine. I I mean, it went, there was a time frame, Roger, Roger de Gorn was this legendary sommelier. He was at a a famous old Tribeca restaurant called Chanterelle. Um, And I remember him telling me, uh, and he's an MS uh, like one of the original guys, but I remember him telling me at one point, like New York City had like five restaurants with Soms. Mm-hmm. Like there, yep. there were like five restaurants. Yep. If you wanted to learn, yep. you would go be, a, you know, you'd, you'd go be a busboy at one of those restaurants, yep. talk to the Som, he'd come back and pour you. He's like, well, this is what a corked bottle of Lynch Bosch smells like. You should not serve this bottle. Um, but 
now we we got to there was this golden era where you know any restaurant in in an outer lying part of Brooklyn or Queens needed to have like they had to have, they have a wine director they had a you know three floor salons and it's uh, every single restaurant it seemed needed mm-hmm, mm-hmm. professional wine staff mm-hmm. and that that felt I don't know that that how long it will take for that to come back mm-hmm. um, I mean. Restaurant tours put a lot of money or a, a, a much higher percentage of their revenue into paying professional wine people and, and into the wines themselves than they had previously. Yes. And yes. Um, that quickly became, you know, as restaurants came back, that was the first thing that they said, well, well, this isn't happening, right? You know, we can't, we simply, the economics don't work that way right now. And I, I don't know what the time frame for the economics to start working like that. Will come. I don't know when that's going to be again. Uh, I mean, we were in this golden era of restaurants and the pandemic just sort of cleaned house. And um, thank God they're starting to come back. But I, I don't know how long it will. Uh, that's a real question, I think, of when things are going to come back, if they come back the way they did. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was a good and bad, right? I, I mean, like on the one hand, it was great to see all of our friends like do so well and there being so many jobs like in our, in our industry. It's amazing. Right. On the other hand, if you're, you know, like my generation and a little younger, like all the financial people would say, this generation spends way too much money, made way too large a percentage of their paycheck on food and drink. Right. They, you really shouldn't be going out to dinner five nights a week. Right, right, right. <laughs> but right. so, and look, the pandemic taught a lot of people how not to go out to dinner five nights a week mm-hmm. or three nights a week. Mm-hmm. And Here's how you make the preacher's lentil stew. It's delicious. You should try it. Here's your sourdough starter. $4. I know. <laughs> you get your own sourdough starter and you can make bread for three months for what that one loaf costs you at the artisanal bakery. You know what I mean? Uh, like, that's exactly right. Uh, I mean, boy, my I tell you what, my wife and I, um, she got into baking like, I'm sure, oh, new story, right? Yeah. Uh, but uh, she, she was doing two cakes a week for a little while. That was kind of rough for me. Oh uh, well, my uh, wife, really my wife, but, my wife always, has always baked. She had her own baking business, so it's always been a challenge for me. Like people go, I don't know how you don't weigh three hundred pounds. I'm like, because I make her give it away. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say there's only one answer there. Yeah. It's like you have nothing to do with it whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, kind of yeah. boolean, I yeah, think. Yeah, you either. Partake or you do not. Yep. There's no middle ground. Nope, 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 nope. So as things are opening up, what excites you? Uh, what excites you most about uh, the wine business and and the work you're doing uh, moving forward? I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing friends and family again. I think uh, you know that's the easy one. Everybody is. Uh, I think it, one of the one of the great things about both sort of the tariff situation and the pandemic is. I think a, a lot of our businesses that we sort of kept to ourselves and we all knew each other, but we didn't really speak. We mm-hmm. didn't really talk. People were quasi competitors or or even even if you weren't a competitor, you were just, you know, with distributors. There was sort of a uh, I'm kind of looking, you know, we're allies, but yeah. I know you're trying yeah, exactly. to be like... a little bit skeptical. But um, and I think we all sort of understood that this is this is a challenge we all need to get through together. Yeah. And our industry works much better when we work together. You know, that, that's something I think like Robert Mondavi actually said really brilliantly. You know, um, he was not, you know, obviously famous guy from Napa, but he was not a part of the Paris tasting. Right. And if there, even though he was making famous wines, he was making, or well, not quite famous at the time, but in Napa, he was the big, probably the biggest yeah, figure the guy. in Napa. He was yeah. the guy. Um, he was making great wine. He wasn't a part of the tasting. And now all these these other guys are, are getting lauded all over. He could have tried to stamp that out. 
he could have been like, you know, the Paris tasting really didn't mean that much. I'm still the guy. If it was done well, I would have been involved. Um, it means nothing because they didn't have me involved. But he didn't. He he understood that California and Napa being on the map when everybody gets when everybody has success in Napa, he's going to be have success in uh, himself, and that you know his neighbor's success, you know. It was gonna it was gonna help his own business, um, and he understood the community of the wine business and how they could all grow and function together. And I think that's something that we are that we've we've had a lot more of that in the last year than I think we ever have, which is which is terrific. Yeah, super cool, super cool. Well, Ben, oh my God, <clears throat> Ben, thank you so much for coming. I just love you have this wonderful way about you, just extremely. Um, a fountain of knowledge and uh, and a very humble, um, but uh, just great conversation, great stories. Uh, and, you know, thank you so much for all the hard work you've done. I mean, you did a lot for the, our whole industry. So no, thank well, you. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I really appreciate it. And, yeah. man, I'm so thrilled that Josh Reynolds uh, t told you to reach out. And yeah. Josh is just the, the just a sweetheart and one of the most knowledgeable guys yeah. on the planet. Uh, he's, I mean, I've had a few conversations with him and, and I got to get him on here. But like literally you could go uh, mating habits of Tibetan llamas and he'll – he could talk for an hour. Well, like he's he, like well, – which, which genus well, is species? Exactly, right? <laughs> Come on, dude. Um, so, um, Ben, please tell everybody um, where they can find you, how they can be a part of the things you're doing. You know, give me some of your social handles, Tribeca Wine. Where can they find you? You know, we're on Instagram at Tribeca Wine. You can please take a look at our website, TribecaWine.com. Sign up for our emails. That's really the best way to see and hear what we're doing. Uh, we love writing about wine and sharing what, sharing what our thoughts are. And we'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. Oh, my God. What a guest today. Uh, ben Aniff, thank you for being here. Until next time, everybody, uh, here's to the mavericks, the philosophers, the deep thinkers, the lobbyists uh, <laughs> who keep us all in the wine and all you wine drinkers. Peace. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list. 